1855, Charles Blondin traveled to the United States from his native France in order to join the circus. But that's not why we know his name 150 years later. You see, the great Blondin, as he became known, became famous four years later on June 30th, 1859, for crossing over Niagara Falls on a tightrope. 1,100 feet, three inches thick, without a net. Here's a picture. But that wasn't enough for the daredevil of Niagara Falls, as he became known. Blondin repeated its tightrope walk a number of times with a number of different variations. Perhaps you've heard of some of these. At one time, he went across Niagara Falls, 1,100 feet, three inches thick, without a net, blindfolded. Later, he did it on stilts. Then he went across with a wheelbarrow. On one occasion, he even sat down midway and ate an omelet. Yeah, you need good protein to cross across, you know, tight rope <laughs> pockets. On another occasion, the great Blondin raised the stakes even higher. He called out to the crowd for someone to be carried across that vast expanse on his back. And all of God's people said, no way. <laughs> And he continued to call out, and he continued to call out, and people continued to shake their heads because they are smart. But alas, a man from Chicago named Harry Colcord finally, and I would suspect somewhat sheepishly, raised his hand. And Charles Blondin carried him from one side of Niagara Falls to the other. Now imagine, if halfway across Niagara Falls on a three-inch wire, 500 feet from solid ground, without a net. Imagine if Harry Colcord asked to get down and to complete the journey on his own. How would that have worked out? You see, it's one thing to trust the great Blondin. It's, it's one thing to trust the daredevil of Niagara Falls. It's quite another thing for Harry Colcord to have walked the rest of the way on his own. It would be quite another thing for you and I to say, you know what, I'm going to finish the journey on the tightrope by myself. And that's exactly where we find the Galatians in chapter 3 of Paul's letter to them. And that's exactly where we often find ourselves. We continue our series. We're exploring the foundation of a life built upon Jesus, the chosen and the precious cornerstone of faith. And as we see in the verses before us this morning, true faith in Jesus is like being carried. True faith in Jesus is like being carried, like Harry Colcord, from one side to the other. Faith is being carried, and it is clinging to the one who carries us. Hear God's word in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, You foolish Galatians! Which is certainly a way to get their attention, would you agree? Imagine how that would feel for a pastor to stand up here and say that to you. Yeah, and I rather like being your pastor, so I'm not going to say that. Okay? <laughs> I feel like this is working out okay. I'd like it to continue. So, you know. Now, this has also been translated as, and I'm not making this up, you stupid Galatians. How are you so dull? J.B. Phillips's paraphrase renders it, oh, you, <laughs> oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. <laughs> Surely you can't be so idiotic. 
You see, some of our translations smooth things out a little bit, but Paul was really, really upset. Paul the Apostle was not always so pastoral, was he? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Which may remind some of us of um, Samantha Stevens, remember? But, but the Galatians, it's even worse than twitching their nose in search of magical powers, right? He says, before your very eyes, Christ Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. In other words, he says, when I led you to put your faith in Jesus, I described in graphic detail what occurred when he was killed. I described in graphic detail. It was like that giant poster at the bus stop you can't help but notice. It's like that massive billboard over your head on the 405 when you're stuck in traffic. We've seen those billboards, haven't we? You can't miss them on the 405. You know why they call it the 405? Because it takes 405 hours to get where you're trying to go. <laughs> it's a good one. I would like to learn, Paul says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? It's not backing down yet. After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it was really in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? So also Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that he would make just, that he would make right by faith. And God, Paul says, announced the gospel, the good news, in advance to Abraham, that all nations will be blessed through you. That's what Eric was reading for us in Genesis 12. That far back, God's saying, this is the gospel. So, those who rely on faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Author Philip Yancey tells a story of riding on a bus to work and overhearing a conversation between a young woman and a neighbor across the aisle. The woman was reading a book called The Road Less Traveled, New York Times bestseller for just shy of 10 years. The neighbor asked the woman, hey, what is it that you're reading? She said, I don't know, a book a friend gave me? She said it changed her life. The man asked her, well, what's it about? I'm not really sure. I suppose it's some sort of guide to life. I haven't gotten very far yet. As she flipped through the book, she would read off the chapter titles to her neighbor just so he could get an idea of what she was reading. Well, discipline, love, grace. And it was then, Yancey says, that the man stopped her. What's grace? He asked. I don't know, she said. I haven't got to grace yet. Yancey says he thinks of that last line sometimes when he watches the evening news. Because we live in a world that is marked with wars, with violence, with injustice, with economic oppression, with religious strife, with family breakdown, but we haven't got to grace just yet. We haven't got to grace. And maybe some of us are wondering, along with that man, what's grace? 
The Galatians had a similar problem, but in some ways, their problem was even worse. You see, they had tasted and seen the goodness of grace, but now they were turning from it. They had this perception that grace began their journey of faith, but they were the ones that had to complete it. They had been carried out there on the tightrope, but they decided, I can walk the rest of the way on my own. And that's what Paul is getting at when he says he wants to learn one thing, but then he asks six questions. Did you notice that? It all circles around that question. Are you trying to get to the other side by yourself? Are you convinced that, that you can walk across that tightrope like the great blonde Dan, like, like the daredevil of Niagara Falls? I once knew a little boy named Grayson. Now, you may have heard this story before. I sometimes tell the story even when it's not in my notes and I don't plan on telling it, and so then I forget if I've told it, but I'm sure I've told it. Um, <laughs> at his four-year-old birthday party, this is true, Grayson asked his parents if he could offer the prayer. His parents were thrilled. Of course you can pray, Grayson. That would be wonderful. And so he prayed, and I quote, God, thank you for getting me this far. I think I've got it from here. <laughs> it's a true story. It's a true story. And I think I've told that story before, and I don't remember how many times I've told you it, because it's so honest and it's so authentic, because it is right where we so often live. Thank you for getting me this far. I think I've got it from here. God, I know I needed rescue back then. I know I needed to be carried when my marriage was falling apart. I know I needed it. God, I know that I needed you back when I was struggling with that addiction. I know I needed rescue. I know I needed to be carried. God, I used to have no idea anything about you. I, I had no idea about Jesus. I know I needed it, but I'm good. I got it now. Now, the Galatians were not on a tightrope. They were not at a four-year-old's birthday party. They were in a world where their identity was being questioned. And what's more, their identity was being threatened. Um, I, I find these historical insights just fascinating. And, and I won't give you the whole story, but just in short, uh, I'll let you know what's going on. And then if you want to talk more, I'm buying coffee. The Galatians had one of two options in their town. Remember, it had been taken over by the Romans. Remember that it had become a good news, a gospel, that Caesar was now in charge of Galatia. So they had two options. They could either bow down to Caesar as a god, or they could claim a kind of religious exemption that was being offered only to the Jews. But to claim this religious exemption, they also had to take part in the practice of circumcision, which is where the sermon gets a little bit awkward. We won't talk about that anymore. Sound good? So, those are the two options. And that's why Paul references Abraham. You know the song, right? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Okay, so the choir knows that song. Good. <laughs> I am one of them, and so are you. So we've got that going for us, which is a pretty good deal. Apologies for the gender-exclusive language. That's just how the song goes. So, in previous weeks, we've seen how the Galatians looked back to Moses, right? They looked back to Moses. They said, Jesus is like a new Moses, right? As someone who liberates us from the slavery to sin, right? That's what Jesus does. He's like a new Moses who liberated God's people to slavery in Egypt, right? Are you with me? Remember that? Okay. 
That's really important to the Galatians. It's really important to Paul's gospel message. It's what theologians would refer to as the, quote, new exodus, right? There was an exodus, and now Jesus is the new exodus. He brings us new freedom, new liberation. But notice, what Paul does here is masterful. Instead of going back to Moses, instead of going back to Moses, the one who gave the law that we have to follow, that we have to keep up with the Joneses, right? Paul goes back even further. He goes all the way back to Father Abraham, the father of Judaism. It would be like someone quoting to you from the Constitution, for instance. Don't get lost on the metaphor, the analogy, but think about it. Someone says, well, you know what the Constitution says, and they tell you all about the line of the Constitution that they're really passionate about, fine, whatever. But instead, you point them even further back to the landing on Plymouth Rock, right? See, a, a, a focus on the Constitution in that sense could be kind of short-sighted. It's not going back far enough. It may have established the rule of America, but the dream of America started 170 years prior. Are you with me? Now, don't get lost on the metaphor. I'm not trying to say anything about the Constitution or Plymouth Rock or anything like that. But that's what Paul's doing. Y'all are going back to Moses. And you love Moses because he liberated you. He brings about the exodus, and Jesus brings the new exodus. Paul says, I get it. But the story goes back even further. Looking back to Moses, looking back to the law, is not looking back far enough. Looking back to Moses, looking back to the law, can inadvertently make a life of faith about us. About our ability to walk on the wire. About our ability to take it from here. Are you with me? Because Moses gave us the rules. All 613 of them. And Moses says, you, you like that one, that, that circumcision? You, you think that maybe you need to follow along? Well, then you better follow along with the other 612. There's a common image that intends to communicate what we're talking about here this morning. Um, perhaps you've seen it. The image has us over here on a steep cliff. And there's this deep ravine between us on this steep cliff and then God, have you seen this? God is over here on another steep cliff. Anybody seen this before? Two of us, fantastic. I'm gonna keep trying to explain it well. Okay, two steep cliffs, deep ravine. And the intended uh, communication is that we are separated from God. Now, we're all, we're all together on that. We recognize the results of sin and the fall and God is separate, God is holy. We cannot measure up to God. And then, if you've seen this image, you know that in between this steep cliff and the steep cliff that God is on, what's in the middle? Anybody? A cross. A cross. And if you've seen this image and you've heard someone explain it to you and use it to try to explain what it means to have faith in Jesus, what they will say is, you need to walk from your cliff over to God's steep cliff. And the cross allows you to do that. Now, here's the problem with this. What that does is, that tells us something that we have to do. That we have to walk across from our cliff to God, which is almost right. The good news, though, friends, is even better than that. You see, putting the cross in the middle between our cliff and God's cliff tells us we have to walk to the other side, which makes the gospel good advice, something for us to do. 
But the good news is even better. The gospel is good news. It's not about us walking from one side to the other. The good news is not just good advice. It's something that Jesus has done. It's like that image of the great Blondin, right? Who has come across on that tightrope and is carrying us on his back. See, looking back to Father Abraham, we remember that, that God has us. God has us who, by merely believing on that side of the cliff, we have been carried to God. Are you with me? We cannot walk on that tightrope alone, 500 feet out on three inches of wire without a net. If we want to walk that wire alone, we will end up putting our faith not in Jesus. We will end up putting our faith in ourselves. We will end up putting our faith in our job or in our relationships. We will end up putting our faith in our families or in our material possessions. And at first, it might go well for us. At first, we might believe our own press that we're good enough to walk on that wire. Anybody ever had one of those seasons? You know what? I think I've got this, right? We might trust our own self-sufficiency, but the problem is we'll never know when it's enough. We'll work harder and harder, but feel less and less successful. We'll work on happy and healthy relationships, but they might never truly fulfill. Our kids would never be good enough. They'll never perform well enough. They'll never make us proud enough. We'll never have enough, even if we keep up with the Kardashians. See, we cannot walk that tightrope alone. We need to be those who raise our hand, like Harry Colcord. We need to be willing to cling to Jesus, to allow him to carry us. I'll never forget the day after my ordination as a minister of the word and sacrament. Ever since I was 13 or 14, all I ever wanted to do was to be a pastor. And so when I went to college, I, I, I did a double major that I thought would really prepare me for ministry. And I excelled. I, I hadn't in high school, believe you me. But in college, once I started reading scripture and, and writing papers and religious studies, man, that was my life. And then I went on to seminary, and I had a three-year Master of Divinity degree, and I loved it, and I stayed up all night making sure the paper was perfect. And then there was all the ordination exams, and that required extra classes and extra tests. And then I was thrilled to be able to join the staff of Good Shepherd in 2006, and to even be ordained here in 2010. It was very rare in those days to be ordained in the church you were already at, and yet God made a way. And I'll never forget the day after my ordination because I felt like it was a letdown. I had put all this time and energy and investment and I thought, I kind of still feel like the same guy. <laughs> I thought when I got REV in front of my name that I was going to feel like a completely different person. That's reverend to you. <laughs> But I was still just Curtis. That was it. And it took a fair bit of time. It took a fair bit of time and a lot of conversation with fellow pastors and family and my wife, Cassie. I'm like, why do I still feel the same? I thought this is the one thing that I wanted. And I realized that at some point in that journey, minute by minute, day by day, it became less about being carried by Jesus and more about walking across that tightrope on my own. 
I had more that I wanted to do for God than I allowed him to do within me. Notice how Paul concludes. This is strong. He says, he says for all who rely on the works of the law are under, what's the word? A curse. For all who rely on the works of the law, who walk their own tightrope, who say, I got it from here, you're under a curse. As it's written, cursed is everybody who does not continue to do everything in the book of the law. Let's keep going. Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole, who hangs from a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. What's he saying? You're looking back to Moses because it affirms you following all those 613 laws. Walk in that tightrope. Thank you, God, I've got it from here. Check me out, all that I've earned. It's not enough. All that will bring is a curse. Paul says, look back to Abraham. Go back even further. Because Abraham shows us how we should respond, and all we need is faith. All we need is a willing hand. You can carry me. And to cling to this Jesus as he carries us from one side to the other. He redeemed us. He carried us. He brought us from one side to another. If only we're willing to raise our hands. So this morning, this morning at this table, we remember Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. We remember that Jesus redeemed us by becoming a curse for us in order that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Friends, as we together this morning take this bread and this cup, may we remember our time on that cliff. May we remember that we were like that woman on the bus who hadn't gotten to grace yet. May this bread and this cup empower us with a message of grace. Because listen, friends, in some ways, our world is just like the Galatians. It's similar in some ways, but even worse. Many have heard about this grace, but have turned away from it. You can hang on to the communion cups for just a second. We're almost there. <laughs> Friends, there are, there are millions outside these doors who live next to you, who live across the street from you, who are on that Zoom meeting with you, who would ask, What's grace? What's grace? There was a great debate once upon a time with um, a number of theologians sitting in a room trying to figure out the difference between all of the various religions and ideologies and perceptions of the world. And they said, what makes Christianity different? C.S. Lewis had not been in the meeting, but he walked into the meeting, right as they're asking this question, what's so different about Christianity? He said, it's simple, grace. Because we will go through all the different ways of viewing the world, what we're called to do and how we're called to live, and they all tell us that we've got to earn it, that you've got to do it. Get down and walk that tightrope. It's grace. That this Jesus comes to us, that this Jesus carries us. May we cling to him. And in doing so, may the good news of God's grace be so evident in us that it spills out to a world in desperate need. God, we give you thanks.